0: Lindsay He, who is a freelance wine journalist and also developing several projects around the world on the show today. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you.
0: Very nice to have you here. So you were born in China?
1: Yes, I was born in China. In the south of China, right across the border from Hong Kong, called Shenzhen.
0: Oh, okay. You say that much better than I imagine I would.
1: Mm. Shenzhen. Now (laughs) you know how to say it.
0: (laughs) What was that like at the time?
1: I always thought that it's the most beautiful town in China. But actually it turned out to be a sex a time because culturally it's quite poor because it's a very new city. And back then it was a fishing village almost when my parents first moved there. But when I was little, it was starting, it was developing. And now it's the most dynamic, young, and rich city in China. Yeah, very young with no, almost no cultural background or history to talk with.
0: So That's almost astounding in a way.
1: For a lot of Chinese cities are like that because a lot of our cultures are not really well preserved.
0: Why did your parents move there originally?
1: They moved there because my mom is from Guangzhou, which is the city right next door, and it's a great gastronomic town. And my dad is from the north, um, Hunan, and uh, he was in the military, and then he was sent to Shenzhen because it's a new city, and he has no background, so he cannot get into bigger cities like Beijing and Shanghai. So that's where he ended up, and that's where they met, and they had me.
0: Oh, great. Mm. I'm glad that happened. <laughs>
1: I, I'm glad, too.
0: And what was your childhood like in that city?
1: Um, nothing to really brag about because it's kind of a, like a boring city you hang out with your friends I actually watch tv a lot I love to eat so I was very fat so I eat a lot I watch tv I lie on a couch <laughs> it's a very lazy childhood nothing that sounds true. ideal <laughs> I don't know but now I really admire what I did but it was back then I was you know I didn't realize how how good I
0: was I feel like your English is quite refined, and where did that happen?
1: I lived in Vancouver for 10 years
0: since oh, okay. I was 12
1: to 22.
0: I think uh, there's a lot of Chinese immigration to Vancouver.
1: Yes, especially my, during my time. A lot of Chinese immigrants, because we were thinking of better education opportunities for the kids, and then China was starting to develop. A lot of people aren't sure, so they move overseas to, to really find a balance between life and work.
0: So it must have been a big change for you. I mean, Vancouver is so beautiful.
1: Yeah, it was very beautiful for me, but I didn't realize that because when I first arrived there, it was a shock. I didn't know that I have to move to Vancouver. I knew that I'm coming with my mom to visit a city overseas and I'm supposed to register at the school board to know about what, you know, when and where I should start my school. So I was like shocked immediately like, wow, I have to live here. And I didn't speak English. And it was a complete, I don't know. A disaster for me I didn't really get mentally prepared to move there
0: I feel like a lot of times when people move as children they develop a different style for the rest of their life how they develop friends Mm -hmm. and how they relate to specific areas what was your experience
1: my experience is that maybe it's good that they did this to me because I feel like in a way I I need to do something right I need to react and adapt But I think it's better to really prepare your kids mentally for the move because it was huge because I didn't really know that I need to live in an English-speaking city. And then all my friends are still in Shenzhen, my school, my teacher. So I was completely severed from all this past history and relationships. And I need to build something new rather quickly. And I had a very tough time integrating into the culture of Vancouver because I didn't speak English much. I remember I was 12 and i um i got I got on a bus and a bus driver asked me if um, you're eighteen why you're holding a student car, and I didn't understand that I was you know i I was frozen there. I don't know what to do and then I realized something like he was asking about my age, and then I realized, oh, maybe he think that I'm you know overaged for the the student car, and I was like, no, 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 I'm only twelve, so you know this whole Maladaption, I guess, in a way, it, it was quite painful. So I remained with my friends, Chinese friends. You know, we play computer games, we chips, but I had a very difficult time starting, you know, learning English and then really merging into the local culture and social circle. So I didn't get to do a very good job.
0: Yeah. Was there anyone that helped you along the way, like a teacher or a friend of some?
1: No, not really, because I think there are too many of them. We, are, we were called ESL students, English as the second language. And there are like, you know, hundreds of them in a high school, especially good high schools, because Chinese parents really care about their kids' education. So in the end, all the top high school have a lot of Chinese kids. And a lot of them back then was ESL students. So we tend to, you know, be in a group and we don't really mingle, mix with other kids. So we stay in a way a very closed circle.
0: But it seems like you've done quite well for yourself in the meantime. So what were the keys for you in developing from that situation to this one? I mean, what led you to focus in and do what you ended up doing?
1: What happened was that when I was 15 or 16, my dad was so crazy about golf. He's like, well, daughter, maybe you should, you know, play professional golf. Because I think that you're tall, you're, you know, you're hardworking. If you want to make a career out of golf, I'm sure that there will be something for you. Because back then, Korean female golfers were really, you know, the stars. So I thought, well, maybe it's a good idea. I will try, you know, we'll see what happens. So I actually moved back to China, to Shenzhen for a year just to play golf, stop schooling and then I play golf um, get trained in gym and I yes I was at the driving range all the time I go you know 18 holes every day it's a lot of training and a lot of yeah it was tough because Shenzhen extremely hot it's scorching heat and I put on the sunscreen and it melt with my sweat and then only the part where I wear bra or you know lighter and all the rest are dark I was I feel like I'm super ugly <laughs> and it wasn't getting anywhere because I realized I was in a Very powerful woman in a way. So I get my short game very good, but in the end, my driver will never go further than 20 yards. So I realized I couldn't really do anything about golf. And then I also realized that I'm also severed from all the peers who are going to school, you know, hang out with friends. And I was the only one who is practicing golf in the driving range with older men. So I realized that, no, I wanna, you know, I wanna continue my school, I wanna learn. And then I realized how. Lucky we are to be in school because being an athlete, professional, is extremely tough. And then moving back from the driving range to school was a big move for me because I feel like, wow, school is so easy. Like, I can nail this because it's nothing compared to staying like hours in the sun and practicing a 10-yard pitching or something. It was completely a relief, really, for me to go back to school in Vancouver and starting from 9 and then from um, grade 12.
0: It kind of built in you that focus and drive that you could...
1: Yeah, later relied on in a way. Yeah, I always remember it with a kind of nostalgia because I feel like I will never live through something as tough as that.
0: A couple of times in this conversation already, self-image has been kind of the key
1: Uh, Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think we struggle a lot in China, women. Chinese women, they do not really have confidence in their look, in their body figure, So we want ourselves to be unnaturally white, which we are not, but we want it to be. So you will see a lot of whitening products in China. And back then, I was very obsessed with that too. But I was playing golf. How could I be, you know, a pale as a pearl? So I was struggling a lot with my skin color. And then back then, when I was young, I was very fat. So I got... um, sneered at a lot by my peers they said oh you're so fat and that you know you're not beautiful and guys don't hang out with me so that was yeah that was something really bugging me for when i was a little
0: yeah but all those people who said that to you back then are losers now (laughs) and you're here beautiful and successful so like what happened next
1: what happened next is that i fell in love with a guy
0: yeah that helped well it probably helped that he fell in love with you back right like he gave you some attention no no oh really
1: oh Oh, okay the best part yes it's not a reciprocal love no i love i i like that guy a lot because he's good looking you know i was i was a young girl what what do you expect so i did try to lose weight for him only on my side because he doesn't really know i exist and yes so that's what I did, and I did it successfully. I've lost 15 kilos. By the end of the journey, I feel like, no, he's not someone I really like. He's just you know, his looks. So I feel like, no, I want something more." So back after my diet, I moved on, and that was it
0: again that kind of rings a bell for me about self-control yeah, like about true. the training for the golf and yeah life. we have
1: that in the chinese culture and in my family too because even for my brother who is 14 years younger than me we have this problem of overeating And my parents always tell me to, you know, to stop eating. You're eating too much or too fat. You will never get married. So (laughs) that scared the shit out of me. (laughs) But um, I guess in a way, self-discipline and uh, it's a big subject in my family and in our culture to restrain discipline.
0: So after you moved on from trying to get in a relationship with some idiot, (laughs) what happened next?
1: (laughs) Oh, he's not an idiot. It's just I don't even know him. What happened next? Actually, um, after a few years staying within my own circle, in my own culture in Vancouver, my Chinese culture, I met this um, English teacher, a Chinese one, actually. He really opened the door for me in terms of um, learning about language, the beauty of literature and language, and really start my journey with English and then later on French and now Italian. I really get the kick out of it, like learning languages and try to master them
0: must be interesting, though, to go from a tonal language like Chinese to a romance language.
1: Yeah, it was tough. It was tough because you see that I was struggling with my English. It was a very hard transition, and it was not easy to start with. But I don't know. I feel like after English, French is becoming better because I know already the difficulties of learning a language. And then Italian is even, even easier because it's similar to French. So, yeah, it's all helping, building... What I'm good at is that I see the beauties of things and that really help, you know, learning things.
0: You were traveling on a ferry and something happened.
1: Yeah. yeah. What was that? Yeah, I wanted to get out of my little bubble in Vancouver and I I was addicted to traveling. That was the ferry trip was when I decided to backpack like many of us have done. For three months in Europe and during a ferry ride from Barcelona to Rome, I met this wonderfully kind Italian guy of my age. And he was just so kind because I didn't have money to spend and he shared his mail with me. And I thought that's one of the kindest gestures that anybody can give me. And so it was a good, you know, journey. And then we said bye and um, I got actually two salamis from him <laughs> <laughs> as gifts. And I didn't know what to do with it because they're so heavy and I don't have a knife. And I just, I just look at it and I later on actually I gave it to a homeless people or something. I don't remember, but yeah, it's funny because I didn't know how to appreciate it. So I received this gifts. I guess they're the most authentic Italian gifts that you can ever receive, but I didn't know what to do with it.
0: They're hard to travel with because if you go through an airport, the dogs often bite your luggage. <laughs> if, you, if you have the I, sausage, yeah, in I your guess bag, it's only, so.
1: yeah, it's bring more troubles than, yeah, than anything else.
0: I love the regift part of that story though that yeah. you passed it on, like you know, paying it forward. You
1: yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I guess someone would appreciate it better than me.
0: I hope that the homeless person was able to find a knife.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. But bite into it. I mean, you know, peel off the skin and you just eat it. But it's too salty for my Chinese palate.
0: Oh, is that a thing? Is uh, Chinese food in China not salty? I don't know.
1: Um, Especially for people from the South, because we appreciate fresh ingredients. We eat more sweet than the North. We have a less salty palate. And so salami for me without bread or anything else is too salty.
0: Because a lot of times people talk about the regional differences to the variances of Chinese cuisine, which are quite diverse, apparently. Mm -hmm. But from the New York perspective, this is very hard to know because it's not like that where I am.
1: Yeah, I think for anybody who has never been to China, it's difficult to imagine. But China is so big. You can have like different dialects, different cuisine, cultures. So even for Chinese themselves, you just cannot pinpoint uh, what is a Chinese because in a way we're all different. And so I remember a lot of people saying that, "Oh, you're not really a Chinese because you are," you know, "you moved to Canada when you were little." But actually, I've met a few youngsters like me who are from Shenzhen, and they're similar in terms of personality, the way to interact with people. It's just a local culture thing, and people, many people, even. Chinese don't even understand.
0: And where did the wine part come in?
1: When I was in university in UBC, Vancouver. What happened is that um, I took a a wine course, a six credits, which lasts for a whole year. I love, I love that wine course. We were, you know, talking about different grapes, tasting different wines. I got a very high score. I remember 92 um, for that course. And the professor, he is very kind, uh, competent, but I don't think he really qualified as a good teacher because I saw one of his PPT. I saw this photo where uh, he's in a wine dinner and I, wow, it, it was just, you know, Great meal with great wine. I was like, wow, I want to get into that. How can I? Then later on after the course, I, I went up to him and asked, how did you get into this kind of wine dinner? He looked at me as if I'm mad. Like, how could you ever ask this question? Or is there anybody even thinking of doing something that only I'm privileged right. enough to join? And so I, he didn't even answer me. He just looked at me as if I'm mad or something. And I had, I guess that's a seed planted in my head. Because, you know, I love wine and I was studying French and um, I just feel like, no, wine should be something less snobbish than that. I guess that was an idea. And then it later on, um, yeah, it later on grew and then now become my whole career.
0: I, I totally think that dudes like that are the worst. Like people <laughs> who try to keep other people out of wine so that yeah. they can feel better about their own knowledge. Yeah, or they exactly. Suck. Those are the worst.
1: And he is a professor. How can you be like that if you are a teacher? That is the core. I think the only purpose kind of being a teacher is that you share your knowledge. You want them one day to be you or even better than you.
0: So it kind of set in you a fire to find this thing that you felt you were kind of being denied.
1: Yeah, in a way, I know that I'm good at wine tasting, I knew. And then also, I think my my own culture, the south of China, Guangzhou, I'm able to appreciate the nuances of spices, of different flavors. And my family is always so obsessed with food. They always talk about food, where to eat. And, you know, they drive two hours to a restaurant, nowhere. And then, you know, find this dish that is, you know, picked spring and, you know, some worms, And they find it, you know, good. I'm like, oh, that's disgusting. I would love to try it too. And that is the Southern Chinese. And so I have that background. And then I know that I'm good in wine. I was learning French. And I was thinking, why don't I just, you know, work in wine? Probably it will make sense more than anything else. So that was something very logical for me.
0: So how did you end up in Bordeaux? Uh,
1: Because I speak French, Bordeaux or Burgundy. So I said, Bordeaux, more opportunity. There you go. I arrived four years ago, 2012.
0: So also a very interesting time for Bordeaux, just in terms of the market.
1: That's true. That's true. So I didn't live actually. I didn't live through the whole the
0: real bubble. Boom. The yeah. 10.
1: <laughs> I lived through the depression, but I didn't live through. So the that's form. fun. <laughs> so it's fun. Yes, yeah. and and this maybe why I'm now more and more into Italian wines because it's very tough for Bordeaux
0: now. Yes. Yeah, is that true? I don't know. It, yeah. all, both of those things are mysteries to me. The Bordeaux right. market and China yeah. are both completely. So tell me what you saw.
1: Bordeaux is just, in general, um, Chinese are less interested in buying primers because prices are not as economical as we assume it to be. So it's not something that we want to buy. In a way, interest in Bordeaux is just really going less and
0: less. So the Chinese are specifically not interested in buying in Premier, which is the before it's bottled market.
1: Yeah, before it was, that's where the bubbles comes in, right? The 2009 and 2010. So we're less interested. In general, people know Bordeaux. Like Chinese in China, when you tell them about wine, they will immediately recognize Bordeaux. But do they really drink Grand Cru Classé? Not necessarily, but in a way it's French wine and it's Bordeaux for many Chinese still in China.
0: So something I've heard a few times, and I don't know how true it is Mm -hmm. because, again, I have no idea, Mm -hmm. but I've heard a lot of times that what was motivating the Chinese market before was a gift-giving economy in terms of the wine side, and so that people were looking for established names of uh, great repute to give as gifts. Is that a fair statement to make?
1: Yeah, it's like many other things. Um, Not only wines, maybe cigarettes too, cognacs, anything that is prestige, an image that you can present and people Recognize that you know that label, that brand, of, you know even bags like LV, um, Gucci. So it's not only about wines; it's also about everything else.
0: But it seems that uh, with some change in government mm-hmm. regulation of officials and the, where gift giving was happening mm-hmm. a lot, that there's been a refocusing of what the Chinese market is interested in purchasing. Is that yeah. fair to say? Or?
1: Yeah. In, uh, starting from 2012, the anti-corruption policy came in. And the whole culture is transformed in terms of not only wine, but, you know, many other luxurious items. So now in terms of the wine culture, the wine market in China, we are really leaning toward the consumer side consuming wines in China. So it's less buying just for gifting. More people are drinking because they want to learn or they want to drink not only for special occasions.
0: So four years in Bordeaux, and Mm -hmm. what was that like? I mean, what happened next after you get there in a depressive time where everyone hates Chinese people?
1: Oh, no, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, in a way, it is. It's a very suspicious um, attitude. to are very ambivalent because we are, at the same time, the people who are paying for everything. And we're, at the same time, who are invading their land. So it was pretty obvious from 2002 that, you know, the interest is lacking because it's not a good vintage. And it continues till now, till 2015. Mm, Yeah, uh, not only premier buying or in general, you know, buying Bordeaux wines, but in terms of buying Chateau in Bordeaux, um, really, you know, give them... a a very hard time because we're able to pay it in you know if you think about the real estate in hong kong it's almost the same price as a chateau in bordeaux so why won't they buy something if they have enough money but for them it's not really valorizing their lands because the wines are all going to be sold in china there will not be a brand that is recognized and they have difficulty selling overseas because normally they are not the most famous chateau which is i guess in a way good because it's not really invading their really core patrimony
0: it would be hard from my perspective to blame you for that because Mm -hmm. you know the americans bought oprion yeah like it would be hard for me to be like no you can't
1: yeah different you know changing of hands in a way you know different economy and you know which one is more powerful and they start to pick things up in all over the world right land companies it makes sense
0: But you felt some uh, resistance or hesitancy on the part of the local French people in terms of uh, your Chinese?
1: I think the local uh, the local media really play on this suspicious stand they don't understand really the chinese culture they only see us as people with money but some of us do right some of us do have money but they don't see us as human being they see us more
0: as a group some of, us of us in this room or some no. oh, yeah <laughs> like yeah. like you know i'm, I'm <laughs> trying just trying to, trying to <laughs> clarify
1: uh, all my con- uh, counterparts here <laughs> no it, yeah it's just you know a way of um having them around me because i have many um, chinese friends in Wardo too
0: I bet. Actually, they're probably drawn to you as a local person who lives there.
1: Yeah, so we have a group like this. So in a way, it's unfair because we are not seen as, you know, Lingzi or, you know, Huang, Yang. But we are seen as a group of people who are, you know, moneyed and then with no brain and who are trying to invade something. So the local media played on that. And I think it aggravates the local sentiments toward Chinese in general.
0: I think I would find it extremely frustrating Mm -hmm. and infuriating if people equated me to like Joe American. Like, if they uh-huh. brought all that on me, because yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. like I'm this big individual <laughs> and I'm totally different than everybody. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I would find it hard if someone uh-huh. were like, so you drive a Toyota Camry and you yeah, vote for yeah. it and you shop at the supermarket. <laughs> and, you
1: yeah, know. You, became, you become a scapegoat. But it's it's okay. It's okay because everything takes time. We all have our own prejudices. We have our, our pre-thoughts about people. It's all, you know, it's natural. It's normal. But once you get to know the people, to get to really spend time with them, all this facade will drop.
0: It's interesting that you reply to it that way, Mm -hmm. that that's how you're handling it and that you stayed there because I think some people would have just left. And it it almost sounds like you're replaying some element of your childhood. You're a nerd to this idea of feeling pushed out because Uh you've already done it once and you're used to it and you realize that the human core can triumph over it. It just takes time because that's exactly what happened earlier in this conversation when you were saying that you felt like you were being not a part of the group.
1: Maybe sometimes we're not patient and positive enough about human nature. If you look through everybody's life, we're all going through the same thing, right? We're trying to work, we earn money, we try to make a good life, we spend time with friends and family, we juggle with different tasks. So after a while, I realized that there's no more getting angry about anything because in a way, we're all the same. I'm very positive about human nature in general.
0: And so as you progressed along, what were some of the standout signposts that you said, huh, okay, this is a new thing, or this is something that's been important?
1: One thing is that I worked for um, the Cantor World Wine Award. I was helping out with the Italian panel. And one of our experts here, Richard Bolden, he was there too. And what he said was really the reason why I'm here today. He said to me, you know what, Lindsay, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Grey, you have to know them because they are so important. You have to know them. You live in Bordeaux, even better, so that you can learn them fast. But then you need to specialize in a country or a region that is less well-known. That got me thinking, and I was thinking, well, Italy. Yeah, I'm always, you know, a fan of Italy. Um, I was treated kindly by this Italian guy. I always have very positive and warm feeling toward Italy. So I was like, yeah, maybe Italy will be the way to go. And that decision taken, and everything started from there. So That, that is such why. good
0: advice on that dude's part. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it's know. so easy to go with the trend when it's happening. That's
1: true. That's and true. not
0: be five years ahead.
1: Yeah, and also another expert here, Monty Walden. He told me about, you know, Lindsay, if you want to study wine, you want to taste wine, you need to get to the basics of wine, which is making wine, harvesting. So that's why I started doing harvesting every year, trying to participate in different regions, see the grapes, know really what's involved, basic ingredient, the grape. And um, really, um, people along the way gave me some wonderful advices. And that's wonderful about people because sometimes you can get very negative and sad with some people.
0: You're talking about me now. (laughs) <laughs> this is,
1: you're talking
0: about, this is Let's me. stop
1: the interview <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's like, you know, you have some bad experiences Some people are jerks, or I don't think that they're really jerks But, you know, sometimes they did bad things to you But then you have others who are so kind and lovely And you feel like, you know, just for them It's really worth it to think positive and just live happily Yeah, to be one of them
0: So what was the first harvest?
1: The first harvest was three years ago um, Luxembourg with a famous producer called Abidur. And he's also one of my mentor. But uh, Abby has such a refined palate. He's so funny. He only, he makes white wine only. And you can see that with his tasting, he's so precise and pure with things. He never drink coffee because he feels like that will, in a way, he, he doesn't like the taste. But I, I get it because he's so precise with his flavor, identification, the palate, you know, everything, texture. He's such a white wine guy. And that's great. You can learn a lot from him.
0: And what was harvest number two?
1: Um, In Bordeaux, too, which is very natural because I lived there.
0: So what was that like? Because, you know, a lot of times in America, we're like, yeah, Bordeaux, they don't do good farming. Nobody Mm -hmm. uses the horse. You know, there's Mm -hmm. no biodynamics. Mm -hmm. There's chemical farming and that kind of thing. I mean, that's the stereotype, Mm -hmm. you know, compared to some other regions of the world. So I wonder what it was like actually doing Harvest there. I mean, what did you see in real life?
1: I guess harvest is easy because you, you've already skipped so many important steps and difficult, uh, difficult decisions along the way. So you come to the vineyard, you know, feeling happy because harvesting only happened on sunny days. So you see this, you know, ripe grapes, bunches, and you just pick them and then get them into the bucket and then send them to the vineyard, uh, the winery, cellar. So it's, yeah, it's easy in a way in Bordeaux because they have done so many, you know, so many work in the vineyard already before the harvesting actually happens. So for me to say anything about um, the harvesting in Bordeaux is, I think, denigrating their, how many hard works that go into it and how many savoir-faire, because when I uh, try to follow um, uh, estates château in Bordeaux, there there is so much knowledge involved. And so in a way, uh, Bordeaux is already so well-established and their knowledge is so profound about their own vineyard, their own graves. It's like a, a, a skyscraper already built. You you don't even ask uh, what's involved because what you see is just so complete already.
0: Do you see an influence from the University of Bordeaux tradition? You know, Emile Péinot. Do you see uh, Danny mm-hmm. DuBardieu? Do you see a, yeah. a line that's still current in the regular thinking that happens today? Specifically about ripeness?
1: Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of modern winemaking was built in a way by University of Bordeaux about, you know, especially Sauvignon Blanc and also Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot. They've done a lot of researches just to study the aromas, the ripeness. So um, I think true, modern winemaking is partly a product helped built by um, University of Bordeaux. What
0: were some of the other key experiences you had in Bordeaux while you were there those four years?
1: I think the, um, the Chinese friend I have there, they really, uh, we are such a close group and we are so passionate about wines. And um, we get to, you know, taste wine together, we have dinner together, we pair with Chinese food, with Bordelais wines, we share different knowledge. And it's really cool, because by the end of it, I become this Italian wine expert for my friends, and I'm sometimes bringing more Italian wines than, you know, Bordeaux wines. So it's good for me to bring a different perspective, and I really appreciate the fact that I think Chinese people in general, and it's shown by my Chinese friends, they're very curious people. They are never afraid to try new things, um, to, to explore the unknown. And that, for me, is something I truly admire, you know, from even talking about my being Chinese, yes, but still looking at this population in general like the student i've taught and then the friends i have they're really you know curious hardworking people and i truly admire them for that
0: so one of the things that's interesting about you is you speak both mandarin and cantonese which is not everybody i imagine Mm -hmm. yeah so you have a chance to speak to a wide range of people who may be visiting a different region
1: Yeah, so it's like the Southern Chinese culture and the Northern Chinese culture. And I think the difference of culture is exemplified by my family because my mom never get along with my dad, someone from the South and someone from the North. And they tell me in the end, it's not really about different personalities. It's just a matter of habits, daily, you know living habits like what you eat your lifestyle what you like to do and in the end they they just don't mesh up and um so their relationship is a rocky one from the beginning to the end
0: but i could see what people want to eat and their lifestyle being very related to the Mm -hmm. wine world Mm -hmm. so how do you see the differences for north and south china in terms of where they're interested in
1: my family don't drink wine and they're my guinea pigs. So I actually teach them about wine. I bring a bottle of Nero Davila for the, um, for the, how do you say, a uh, uh, ship's kidneys that we, yeah, we cooked that actually once um, a week ago when my family was in Bordeaux. Uh, sheep's kidney, uh, kidneys that we bought from a... Um, sheep's
0: kidneys. Yeah. Okay. That sounds much better than ship's kittens.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That's
0: a dish I that never, you'd be
1: cooking. Yes, I never say that in English. Yeah, Yangyao, we say in Chinese. So it's a very exotic dish. And I know it, offend, it offends a lot of people.
0: I mean, ship's kittens, courses. is... <laughs> Definitely gonna offend, <laughs> Sorry. but sheep's kidney.
1: <laughs> Sounds better, right? I mean,
0: I, I, you know, you got a higher ratio of likes. <laughs> on that, <I> think.
1: <laughs> Sorry. So um, yeah, so I bought a bottle of Nero Davila and it pairs very well with it. And so that's how I, I coach my family to, to drink wine. And they get, a, they get a feeling, you know, how, oh, um, different grapes, different wines, Italian wine, French wines. Yeah, so my mom's family is more typical of Guangzhou. They enjoy food, they talk about food. And um, yeah, their life is centered on very practical enjoyment, a hiddenism. Whereas my dad from the North, is, they're more intellectual. Maybe it's not for, you know, everyone in the North. But, you know, just by looking at them and making a comparison, um, my dad himself loves to read. And, you know, for example, in my for my mom's family, you never see them sitting there reading a book. So they're talking about livelihood, they talk about work, policy, government, food, restaurant. But they're not, you know, they do not think too much into into the future. They do not read too much into things. But my dad's family is a complete different story. So you see that.
0: That brings us back to the theme of you kind of seeing different cultures early in life and realizing it didn't have to be exactly one way. Yeah. And sort of being an observer of a multiplicity of, of life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is something I truly appreciate. And, um, and I, I do see that more and more with the younger generation. We're just so globalized um, in a way that um, my mom and my dad never get to be exposed to. So I think this diversity and multiple culture energy vibes is something that I truly appreciate. And I think it's the characteristic of our generation.
0: I mean, it's certainly true that when I'm in Rome, say, uh-huh. I see a lot of Chinese visitors. So mm-hmm. it seems like there is a younger generation that mm-hmm. does want to be global. Well, like, for instance, I was walking through some part of Rome and I couldn't tell you where, but I encountered a wedding party yeah. of, you know, there's two Chinese people getting married.
1: Oh, okay. In and, Rome.
0: It, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, you know, Rome, not the worst location to do it. Yeah. But that seems to me a different. Chinese generation than one, say two generations back. I don't think they would have had that opportunity to travel to Italy.
1: No, for my parents' date, I don't. I don't even think they took a wedding photo. And for our generation, I, for example, my close friend, he worked at Blanc and he was in France and Spain to take marriage photos, and that's something completely unheard of for my parents' generation.
0: So where do you see this going?
1: We will see more and more young people drinking wines that are not necessarily expensive and luxurious, like big brands, but it will be something like, you know, maybe uh, niche uh, wines, different grapes, appellations. It will be more diversified and it will not be limited only to the high end category. In China, 90% of the wine we consume are Chinese wines. They're not foreign wines. So only 10% are imported. And then also in the next few years, we are set to become the biggest wine production country in the world, just by planting area and also the production volume. And I think that will be a big category to appear on our supermarket shelves in the future. Baijiu is on the way out. It's just too alcoholic, you know, 40 or higher alcoholic degree will not go far in this market because we are looking for something more health conscious. People are realizing, you know, for example, my dad, he has liver cancer. And guess what? That's probably from the Baijiu that he has drunk. So um, for sure, Baijiu is on the way out. And it may be appreciated, but I think in a more connoisseur way, it will not be a gambé, you know, on the banquet Everybody's like getting drunk with Baijiu, that sort of way. So um, now wine is on the way in and along with maybe beer, because we have now craft beers and it's very, you know, very a la mode right now everywhere in the world. And we also have sake, which is also another alternative. And also we have this appreciation that wine is something Western and is cultured. Yeah, and I think that image will never fade. Culture, sophisticated, they aspire to that. To just say the word wine is something that already, you know, conjure up a dream almost. So when I say that I work in wine, people are like, "Wow, what did you do? Like, it must be so different, luxurious. You know, a different lifestyle altogether." But for Europeans, it's just a way of life. It's not as different as you drinking water, probably. But for them, it's something that, you know, is rare occasions. You know, a lot of knowledge and a lot of courage to speak about it, to drink it, because you need to say something about it.
0: Is there some reason why there's so many Chinese wine writers and wine journalists who are female?
1: it may have to do with a lot of them being educators and i guess women in general are you know more um in that field right so you is have, that true
0: in china most uh, of the teachers are
1: yes many teachers are female and i also think that the feminine beauty goes well with wine as we've talked about you know the the lifestyle the beauty of life hedonism a finesse i think it go yeah it goes well together these two um elements um, it may be a coincidence also, you know, maybe the first generation who get attracted to wines are mostly female.
0: It seems inevitable to me that China will develop its own Robert Parker kind of figure from within China that mm-hmm. will have a lot of sway within that market that mm-hmm. speaks to them in the way that they want to be spoken to. That mm-hmm. has an effect, just mm-hmm. like, the, you know, because originally we paid attention to Broadbent and Hugh Johnson and mm-hmm. then we developed our own critics and it was a big change. It was a big mm-hmm. change for the whole global market. Mm-hmm. So, if that were to happen, mm-hmm. how do you see that happening? Or is that just an illusionary idea that I have?
1: I think the parkerization of um, wine industry is gone, in a way. Because no matter if it's in Europe, uh, United States, or in China, you know, realize that the wine of the world is so diverse and big and it's changing every day, it's very hard for someone to really say that he knows everything or she knows everything. I
0: mean, I say it quite easily. I don't know if it's correct, but I... it it rolls off the tongue almost and there's
1: nobody going after you (laughs) um yeah so it's hard to say that and it's not true because we realize that the world of wine is so big so parker i think he is a product of his era because we need someone like him and he happens to be there at the right moment doing the right thing and good for him but i don't think in china um we need one opinion leader. We need several because, you know, we can focus on different areas. We can focus, one, focus on French wine and not even French wine. I mean, one focus on champagne, the other focus on Burgundy, you know. And in the end, I think it will be something like this. Like people will look for different opinion leaders in different region and different wines. That is already happening in China. For example, we have, you know, someone um, who is well-known or, you know, listened to um, for Champagne and, you know, Burgundy, we have someone already, um, she writes a lot for different magazines and authority, you know, in a way on everything Burgundian. Um, So I think that will be the way to go in the future. And one single man or woman will be tough, yeah, to command the whole Chinese wine market
0: but you do see the emergence of domestic critics like you yes. don't think that they're necessarily going to listen to the English or American critics like they're going to have people of their own to
1: yeah speak um, to their
0: palate and
1: I think for someone to be really local um, you know to speak wine in a very local way I don't see that truly you know uh, I don't see that fully emerged yet we still borrow vocabularies, concepts from the Western world because that's where I think everything about wine is more developed. But uh, we need, uh, you know, someone maybe just to have a Chinese face and speak the Chinese language so that we can feel more comfortable.
0: And I guess the classic question that you probably ask too much Mm -hmm. is like about the counterfeiting and like Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to explain to me what I Mm -hmm. might not understand about Mm -hmm. that issue, which is probably Mm -hmm. talked about to death, Mm -hmm. honestly, Mm -hmm. but if there's some aspect that as a foreigner that I I wouldn't recognize, Uh what do you think that that would be?
1: I think in general, uh, the Chinese culture do not run so fundamentally as the Western culture on trust, and that runs deep and it's a problem very hard to eradicate so not only counterfeiting just by doing business or relationships i think we rely less on trust in general that doesn't only apply to foreign wine even on chinese wine you know is it really made with a grape it says it's made with and uh, where does it come from um is all information, you know, reliable um, that apply for foreign wines, expensive wines that we're counterfeiting and also on our own wines. So I think there's certainly a time and room for progress, but it's a problem more serious than just counterfeiting wines.
0: There's a lot of the wine communication in, in the New York or American scene that's happening on Instagram right mm-hmm. now. Is there... A- a social media thing like WeChat that seems to really dominate for wine communication at this moment for Chinese.
1: Yeah, WeChat. Definitely. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. WeChat and also Weibo. Weibo is on the downside now because I guess it's there's too much information simply. WeChat is A closer circle you can only share information with friends that you have approved and you add them to your group so you share information that way so it's more selective and um, yes that's how we communicate about different things including wine
0: and you imagine the chinese buying power to remain the same or to grow over the future or did we see a unusual blip there
1: it's definitely the economy slowing down so i do see that people are spending less because we our pockets are becoming smaller You can feel that just in China by looking at every single aspect of life. Will that continue in a way that is worrisome? I don't think so, because we have a big economy and we have a big population to support all the consumption is sustainable. So um, I don't worry about that too much, but I think it will be more reasonable. It will be less uh, dictated by fashions or brands, blinding shopping in a way. I don't know how to say, but it's, it will be something more mm. westernized. There'll be some educated
0: consumers who are making choices based on what they think, not on some supposed brand uh, lifestyle. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, it will be more like the Western world because now we are getting more and more information. We travel more and we get more information from the outside. We know what's real and what's not real. And we won't listen to people just by saying that, oh, this is a good one, you know, buy it.
0: You have spent a lot of time outside of China, and you really have started in the last few years to specialize in Italy in a really interesting way. And what's that experience been like for you? I mean, I think that person telling you to go find your own niche was astute.
1: I think so. I think that's the best decision I've made because that opened doors everywhere. I didn't realize that um, it how how different it is actually to be specializing in Bordeaux and be specializing in Italy. Um, I think also because I have a very good mentor, Ian Dagata, to, you know, to coach me, to help me along the way. And, um, but in general, I think um, I get a lot of support from producers, from, um, from different, um, for example, different educators or, you know, opinion leaders, experts. I think it's because uh, Italy is so complicated and there isn't yet a real expert on Italian wines in China. So they want someone to, you know, to speak with authority, to speak with enough uh, knowledge not just to you know not really to dominate no i think it's just a matter of having someone who can trust in a way so they see potential in me and i'm willing to learn and i think many people are very generous in terms of sharing knowledge with me sharing time um telling me you know teaching me tasting with me and so i'm very very grateful for for them
0: so what is the outlook for italian wine with chinese consumers
1: for me, whenever I go guide tasting, people are just so eager to learn. They want to taste, they want to, you know, to know different grapes, wines, uh, region. Though many of them have not been to Italy even. They have heard about this for, you know, heard about this country for a long time. But I mean, aside from Tuscany or even maybe Piedmont, that's already rare. Many other region they have never been to because I think the language barrier and maybe because there are so many other places to go is not yet Italy, you know. But whenever I go, I just see eyes so full of desire to learn. I feel like, oh, I should really be here like, you know, 100% of my time because they need me. They want to know more about Italy.
0: What are the keys for translating Italy and its multiplicity to China and its multiplicity? Like what works?
1: I think people feel the energy that I have, I have inherited from the people I've met. You know, all the, the, the friendliness they share with me, all the goodwill. And I think I'm able to carry that with me, and I'm able to share them with my audience. And I'm able to relate to them because, you know, I'm Chinese, but I am I was being given the um, pleasure to, to share so many good wines and good food and knowledge. And um, I think they feel that I'm able to speak with a very intimate way that they can relate to. And I always tell anecdotes. I always tell only the things that I'm able to tell with my personal experience. I don't like to, I cannot make up things because I just feel fake when I say something that I don't know. So I always say something that I know personally, and I think people feel that.
0: Lindsay, he has spent a lot of time in her early life figuring out who she was, and it turned out that that person could open up doors for wine in Italy and China. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Lindsay He, a freelance wine consultant and educator in Italian wine in China and in France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs.